only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Linguist. I had a linguist. I Right now, like 267 22 Jiggy. Daddy Bunny. Hey, Jiggy, what's happening, man? It must be that uh, David Bowie song. Jiggy play guitar. Jeff. It's a great name, man. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Presenting. I'm, I'm Mike Massey, and uh, you know, you can catch me on Jiggy Jag TV and uh, see a few of my tricks up there. Thank you very much. Jiggy Jaguar. I never knew what freedom was until I saw you lose yours. Yes. Get a hold of us online at JiggyJaguar.com. Lots of things happen in the day. We got Dan Perkins, the dangerous man. He's a dangerous man. Dangerous man radio dancer. We also got the fantastic IQ hours only. I think that's next hour. Uh, get a hold of us online. At jigmanfroid.com. There is no such thing as jigmanfroid.com. That would be awesome if there was. And I may buy that domain name at some stage of the game. If I become a uh if I become a Colorado um morning show host on an indie station, I might get the website jigmanfroid.com and become a Colorado Colorado indie man or something I don't know okay so Dan Perkins coming up but AJ Rice is right now the Jiggy Jaguar radio program continues Wow. <laughs> oh, it's always such a fun day. Get a hold of us online at JiggyJaguar.com. That's J-I-G-G-Y-J-G-U-A-R.com. 50-plus AM FM stations across the country and around the world. KFRK in Denver, and we have got a great guest joining us today here on the telephone. Author A.J. Rice is with us. A.J., how are you, sir? James Lowe, my diggy brother. <laughs> What's poppin'? Now, you have got uh, quite the book here. Let, 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 let's talk about your latest book. This is getting rave reviews. In, in fact, uh, I think every week um, Sandra Lee puts you over like nobody's business in her. She does a segment for us every week, and before she starts, she always goes, Oh, my God, have you read the latest A.J. Rice book? <laughs> oh, I know, but I, she's, I know, she's been, I'll wake up in the morning and she'll, she'll have texted me a passage from my own book back to me. 
I'm like, what? He's up at 3 in the morning thinking about me. What's happening here? Hey, I'll tell you, the book is phenomenal. Tell me a little bit about your writing process and, and how you brought this to life. Well, look, what I noticed, especially during COVID, is that the country, the medical virus, and, you know, it had us locked down. It had, you know, things on our faces. They were shutting down proms, shutting down graduations. People were moving their weddings. They told us where, when and where we couldn't go. It was really a dress rehearsal of authoritarianism. And, you know, what I noticed while that was happening was that there was a second virus afoot, a cultural one. And, you know, this was one that while we're locked down, they're going to wokeism into us in various forms. The Me Too movement, cancel culture, the critical race theory nonsense in the schools and in the colleges, and, and then obviously all the other sort of, you know, buzzword garbage that comes with wokeism, you know, intersectionality and, you know, patriarchy and white privilege, uh, you know, virtue signaling. So I was just like, okay. So basically, they capture us with one virus, and then they try to re-educate us with the other. And that, I call it a Vogue virus because, the most part, I mean, we see this. We've seen waves of this before, and it usually does have an expiration date. Um, the political correctness movement of the 1990s was certainly the last time it was somewhat bad. So I had to get out there. Um, you know me, I'm a behind the scenes guy. Uh, you know, we appreciate you. We appreciate your, you know, your audience putting our people on, but I figured it was time for the Wizard of Oz to come out from behind the curtain. <laughs> We've got AJ Rice with us today. He is a fantastic author and he joins us today here on our big program. So AJ, what has been the feedback that you've gotten on this book so far? Well, I mean, look, the book has hit number one on Amazon, uh, I mean, in multiple categories, almost every day, a new category. I think, I think we're number one in a couple right now. Um, people are buying the book. They love it. Um, you know, obviously, as you know, I work with members of the media. Uh, you know, some of them are very well-known names. Some you know, some you didn't know till till James Lowe had them on the show, um, and now they're regulars, right? So, yeah. you know, overall, pretty positive. Um, what I'm finding is that if you get outside of the Trump-Biden box, and I do, you know, look, there is a section on on the Republicans and a section on the Democrats in the book, but the other eight sections are pretty much timeless. And what I'm finding is. There's a lot of people that, that maybe don't agree with James Lowe and Rice on tax cuts or immigration or trade, um, but they agree with us on this. They agree with us on this because they're having their funds sucked from them. They're having actors replaced for parts. They're having shows canceled. They're having comedians canceled. And they're having, you know, real revisionist history garbage being fed to their children. You know, the Founding Fathers are terrible. You know, they, they came for Lee and his horse traveler, and then they came for the Founding Fathers. They were, they were all a bunch of Klansmen, slaveholders. 
Jefferson's gone, and Madison's gone, and Monroe's gone. Washington will be gone soon. And then they came for, for you know, General Lee, and then they came for Lincoln, and then they came for Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, they're working their way up to you, James Lowe. <laughs> well, they they've tried on a few occasions of, uh, of 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 taking care of me, but uh I'm like a virus. I'm just still here. Uh <laughs> AJ, everywhere. AJ Rice with us today. He joins us live here on our big broadcast and uh AJ, this book incredibly well written. Uh tell me a little bit about some of the things that you included in the book and some of the things that you didn't include in the book. Well, I mean, the book's, you know, it's the sequel to War and Peace. No, I'm joking. It's not. <laughs> People have been giving me a hard time because there's so much citation at the end. They're like, oh, the book's 400 pages. Look, it's not 400 pages. There's about 100 pages of uh, citations at the back. Uh, I'm an old-school English uh, literature guy, so I do, uh, you know, I do my due diligence when it comes to putting something together. Look, the, the fun thing about the book and... You know, I'm part of the short attention span theater generation. Uh, you don't have to read it cover to cover, right? So you've got 10 sections. You've got, you know, uh, about 97 different vignettes. Some are funny, some are insightful, some are horrifying. Um, and so you can jump around, right? You know, you can do a nugget here, a nugget there, and have some fun with it. Um and, you know, and it, it all sort of ties together under one theme. Um, it is Volume 1, James, so whatever I leave out, I'll put in Volume 2, okay? That's awesome. I think I might get you to write Volume 2. <laughs> uh, we'll make this thing like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where there's a different star for each volume. <laughs> um, but what I'll say is this. The thing that got me going, that really spurned me on this, I deal with a lot of stand-up comics. Um, you know, I've... I put people on their shows. I've represented them. And what a lot of libertarians, even philosophers, have said over the years is that if, if your comedians are scared, then you have an authoritarian uh, society. The second they're scared, because the second you can't mock your leaders, the second you get run off stage, then you have fascism afoot. And I don't care whether it's George Carlin on the stage, who's not exactly a right-wing guy. You know, he's not with us anymore, but people like that. Or you've got, like, Larry the Cable Guy. If you're running comedians out of, out of comedy clubs, like recently Dave Chappelle had to transfer his show in Minneapolis from one club to another because the LGBTQ mafia was trying to do, was going to do a hit on the club. Okay? So where we're at, for me, I was reading a story about Venezuela and Maduro and Chavez, the regime that's there. And this story was about basically how these comedy clubs were operating underground like speakeasies. And they were goofing on the president. And the little and basically what would happen is you know, word would get out that they're, the, you know, the illegal comedy club operating. And the jackboots, the Chavista jackboots would show up and bust up the place and start arresting people. So, look, there's a whole group of people that would love to arrest Dave Chappelle for making fun of trans people or Ricky Gervais for making fun of everybody. <laughs> and 
I guess the question is, if you're a comedian starting out tomorrow, are you going to comply? If you've got, if you're just, you know, look, if you're trying to earn a living, um, you're probably going to start tailoring your jokes to the Woking Dead because you're afraid of them. They may deplatform you. They may shadow ban you. You know, or they may, you know, jump on stage and try to attack you, like what happened to Dave Chappelle about 90 days ago. And isn't it interesting, James, I want your listeners to think about this. Um, Cancel culture doesn't have to come always in in the form of left-wing radicals. It can come in the form of Islamic radicals. Because Salman Rushdie was basically canceled 33 years in the making. If you think for one second a fatwa is not cancel culture, it absolutely is. Oh, yeah. When a man jumps on stage with Lee Zeldin, some drunk guy that doesn't like what he's saying about the <laughs> Veterans Affairs, Zeldin's a, uh, a uh, member, was a retired member of the military, and he jumps on stage with a knife. So they jump on stage with Chappelle with a knife, they attack Salman Rushdie, they jump on stage with a knife uh, stabbing weapon with uh, Lee Zeldin, they give out Supreme Court justices' addresses, this is a chilling effect, James, and this is all the inevitable conclusion of cancel culture. If they can't get rid of you digitally, they may come find you physically. Well, AJ, before we let you go, I know that you're en route somewhere. Before we let you go, how do people get the book and get involved with what you're doing online? Well, look, the book is hasn't been shadow banned yet. I've got a great publisher, Post Hill Press. Simon & Schuster is the distributor. Um, you can get the book you know, everywhere. Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, booksamillion.com, target.com, walmart.com, you know, everywhere. So, you know, get, get yourself a copy. Get ready to fight the Woking Dead at the polls this November. Go to the polls. Send Pelosi and Schumer packing. Wave a copy of the Woking Dead around in those phony poll watchers' faces. Fantastic. Well, you are amazing, as always. Thanks for doing this, brother, and I will talk to you soon. We love you, Jiggy. Anytime. Thank you, man. There he goes. That is A.J. Rice. And we are going to take a brief time out. And when we come back, we have got more coming up. It is the Big Now that we're home more than ever, we need to feel safe. Call it a sign of the times or the world we now live in. What do you want to keep safe? The people in your life? What do you want to protect? Your possessions? The things that belong to you? The things that you've worked hard for? Wouldn't it be nice to have tested, trusted 24-7 protection? Peace of mind, real protection that's always there for you and your whole family? Well, now you can with one of our state-of-the-art home security systems. Everyone thinks their home is safe until the unexpected happens. 
Start protecting your home and loved ones today with the affordable next generation in home security. To keep your family and property safe, call 1-800-676-1070. Representatives are standing by to assist you. That's 1-800-676-1070. 1-800-676-1070. If you don't have final expense insurance, this message is for you. LifeCare provides valuable whole life insurance to help cover final expenses, medical bills, burial costs, and unpaid debt. A final expense insurance policy is fast, easy, affordable life insurance available to anyone between the ages of 50 and 80. No medical exams, no lengthy questionnaires, and no waiting period. Call LifeCare at 800-926-6092. 800-926-6092. 800-926-6092. LifeCare provides valuable whole life insurance to cover final expenses such as medical bills, burial costs, and unpaid debt. A final expense insurance policy is fast, easy, affordable life insurance that's available to anyone between the ages of 50 and 80. No medical exams, no lengthy questionnaires, and no waiting period. The application process is quick and easy. You can even apply without having to undergo a medical examination. Just answer a few questions and we'll do the rest. With the average funeral costs skyrocketing to $11,000 and Social Security only paying $255, you need simple, affordable peace of mind for you and your whole family. Don't leave behind unpaid expenses, expenses that if left unattended, will burden your family tremendously. Benefits include a guaranteed premium that will never increase, a guaranteed cash value, and a guaranteed death benefit that can never decrease. To find out how you can get final expense insurance with a guaranteed lifetime rate lock, call LifeCare at 800-671-0247. 365, the number two internet radio program according to TalkStreamLive.com. This is the Jiggy Jaguar Radio Show. Yes, indeed. Lives Live can get on our big broadcast. Thanks for joining us. We have got the most dangerous man in radio coming up. The great Dan Perkins is going to join us here in a few moments. And uh, he has got some incredible books. We are going to talk about one of his books today. And we are going to go to the great Dan Perkins here in just a few seconds. He will join us on the old Skip Skype. Yes, the old Skyper Rooney, as they say. What is that I'm hearing in my headphones? I don't know. Last seen days ago. What does that even mean? What does that even mean? <laughs> Dan Perkins was last seen days ago. According to Skype. According to the old Skip Skype. What in the world is this? I have no camera. Fantastic. It might be because I still have Zoom open. We did a uh, we did an interview via Zoom earlier today. I cannot stand Zoom. <laughs> Not a fan of Zoom. And uh. 
Redo that. Hello there. There we are. Okay. I'm having a little bit of issues with Manicam, so I'm trying to get <laughs> things back online here. But uh, we have got Dan Perkins with us today. Of course, he joins us live. And uh, Dan is the uh, the man about town, I guess you would say. Um, as Dan always likes to say, he is, he is uh, not leaving a lot of people ink because <laughs> he is uh soaking up all the ink in the world writing all sorts of things and today we have got dan with us to talk about uh one of his books i wanted to have you on to to chat about your books because we don't really ever get a chance to talk about your work whenever we have you on our uh on our tuesday show right. so i wanted i wanted to have you on today to talk about the books so you have been uh, putting together a lot of different books, and this this yes. this latest one, or or the one that we're talking about today, "Sad Eyes," is uh, a departure from you, Dan. Tell tell me a little bit about this book. It's it's my first uh, romance novel. <laughs> now this is a guy who's written three children's books, one of them being on dementia. Yeah, four book four books on terrorism. And now I, I wrote a book, a romance novel. And um, my wife said as I was writing the original trilogy and I started to write some of the children's books, <clears throat> I asked her whether or not I uh, could I write other in other venues. And uh, she said, well, either you're a writer or you're not. <laughs> I, said, I said, well, I don't know that that's true because every writer can't write in all venues and be successful and accepted. She said, well, okay, I'll, I'll give you that. But I think you should, you ought to try it. So um, the first book that I wrote out of uh, venue was uh, the book on dementia. And, and uh, that was called, well, why can't Grammy remember me? Yeah. And it was written because of a longtime friend of mine, uh, and a client and a business associate for many decades um, passed away from dementia. And um, I didn't know much about it. And most of the people in my family, none of them had dementia, so that I didn't have any firsthand experience. So I just decided to write a story, but I didn't write at the, the last, according to the critics, the last major book for children uh, on dementia was written by Maria Shriver in, in 1984. <laughs> wow. Really? There hasn't been much since then. So I decided to take a different approach and, uh, um, the children loved it. The Alzheimer's association loved it. Everybody loved it. So I was convinced I could uh, do something. And, and a friend of mine who was, uh, one of my big supporters for songs and stories came to me and he, he and his wife were part of a foundation that wanted to build a new children's hospital here in Fort Myers. And he said, um, could you write a book about a red wagon? And I said, I don't know why. He said, because we're building this new children's hospital. And uh, it's the Galasana Children's Hospital. And it's a red wagon hospital. I said, and that means wherever possible, the children are transported in the hospital in red wagons <laughs> instead of gurneys. That's awesome. So I sat down and I wrote a, a book called Timmy and the Little Red Wagon. And uh, his foundation paid for thousands of copies to be given 
to children who came into the hospital. The hospital staff just loved it, and uh, but it's a very personal story. So I started writing the book we're going to talk about later in the week, and that was Abraham Lincoln and the Second Assassin. Yep, yep. And that book took four and a half years to write. Long time. Wow. And and over six months to edit it. So when I was writing it, I said, well, what? What's my next book going to be? Am I going to do another book in the terrorist sequel or am I going to do something totally different? So I went on the Internet and I was looking for what was the most popular type of books sold in the United States. And far and away, far and away was, was romance novels. So then I did further discussion and analysis, and what is the most popular selling theme for the romance romance novel? And, and I had no clue. And I looked at it, and I kept trying to convince myself what that was telling me was wrong. But the most popular theme in in, in romance novels, at least today is stories that take place during and after World War II. Wow. So I knew the era that I was going to write about, what I was going to write about. I just had to figure out who, what, where, when, and why. <laughs> the small stuff. So I, 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 um, I can't speak for all writers. I can only speak for myself. <clears throat> Whether I'm writing commentary or writing novels or children's books, I write them in my brain before I put them down on the computer and, and, and type it out. So um, I decided, since I had read several, several novels about World War II, <clears throat> that there weren't a lot of books written about women you know, those things we used to call women were alive in World War II. <laughs> so I decided and I, 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 I said, OK, um, what's it going to be about? And it's going to be about a <clears throat> second generation Irish lassie, red hair, green eyes, gorgeous, born in Waterloo, Iowa, in 1916, around the time of the First World War. Wow. As she grows and matures into an absolutely wonderful, gorgeous, caring person, she is downtown in Waterloo shopping with her mother, and she says to her mother, what's wrong with that man? Why does he have only one leg? And her mother says, because he lost his leg in the First World War. Mm. And we have to treat those men who gave up parts of their bodies or the families of those who gave up their lives <clears throat> uh, with respect and honor and dignity. So she uh, goes to school um, and uh, in, in her sophomore year of high school, She's, she, she's fighting two decisions. Because she's such a gorgeous Irish lass, everybody, all the boys want to 
as they used to say, get in her pants. <laughs> yeah. And she says she makes a commitment to herself. If she allows that to happen, then whatever she decides she wants to be, she may not be. She may stay in Waterloo, Iowa. Now, she loves her family, her brother yeah. and her sister, but she's not a Waterloo, Iowa type. So the, the veteran that she met causes her in high school to volunteer at the veterans facility <clears throat> in Waterloo. And she meets nurses and doctors and works with patients and works in different departments in the hospital and can, is convinced that she needs to be a, a nurse. But she can't be a nurse and she can't go to nursing school in Waterloo, Iowa. There is one, yeah. but she can't go there. She wants to get out of town. So she applies for one of the most prestigious nursing schools in the country in Chicago. Big city, everything she's looking for. And she gets accepted. Now, for people who have not read any of my serious books, not that the children books aren't serious, but the terrorism <laughs> books, I'm, I am a great believer in detail. And what I mean realistic situations. So, <clears throat> um, at the same time this is happening, it's now 1928 when she graduates from high school into 29. And her father runs a machine, works at a machine shop. Her mother is a seamstress. And the depression comes and things start to get really bad. And we get a glimpse as she's making her decision what life is like in the early stages of the Depression in the United States in the late 20s and early 30s. She gets accepted at the school of nursing, and her parents drive her to Chicago. And part of the journey is to look and see what's happening to our country with the Dust Bowl and the foreclosures and people in homeless camps. And so we get a sense of what's going on in the country as it relates to the depression. But at the same time, she goes to Chicago, which is much more dynamic than Waterloo. And in her nursing school, she lives alone in her first year. Now, a lot of people don't know this, that, that in nursing schools in the 30s, you, worked, you went to school at a hospital and you were trained in the hospital. And they provided you room and board and they paid the tuition in exchange for working in the hospital on nights and weekends. Wow. So they were, uh, and so there was a three-year program. It was called a certificate program. And she's first in her class. And in her second year, she gets a roommate from Brooklyn, New York. And they decide that um, to become good friends, and he tell, she tells her about her commitment, that she does not want to have sex with anybody, because if she gets pregnant, whether they use condoms or not, if she gets pregnant, her career as a nurse is over. Yep. Well, they meet a couple of guys, and they do the town, they go to baseball games and restaurants, and and she, the job that she has is working in a hospital on the west side of Chicago where all the gangsters get shot. So she works in the emergency room. She gets a chance to treat all of the 
all the gangsters. And everybody wants her because she's this gorgeous redhead. And um, so in her second year, she has a roommate, as I said, from Brooklyn. And she tells her about her commitment to herself. And um, so they part, they have two weeks off in August. That's the whole, the whole vacation they get all year is two weeks. They, she goes back to Waterloo and, they, and she goes through the countryside on the train looking at what's happening, how much it's gotten worse as far as the depression. And, um, and I'm obviously leaving out a lot of detail because there's a lot of detail in this story. Anyway, um, when she comes back to school for her third year, her roommate isn't there. And she can't find out why she's not here. And she finally calls and calls and calls her in Brooklyn. And her mother says she's not here. She's out doing something, yada, yada. And finally, she yells at the mother, I've got to talk to her. And sure enough, her roommate got pregnant. And she wow. doesn't know if she can come back to school. So she's lived, she's made a promise to herself. And... She continues, and she's finished first in her class in school, nursing school, and she has a job working at the hospital in the emergency room. And after about eight months, they say to her, you really need to go back to school and get your RN so that you can be a charge nurse. Charge nurses, for those of you who don't know, are the, the, the people who are responsible for scheduling and the training of nurses on the floor, wherever department they're in. And she wants to do it in the emergency room. So she goes back to Northwestern University to get her RN. And um, one day she's in the library studying. And this guy keeps looking at her. And he keeps looking at her. And he finally comes over to her and he says, uh, is there a place we can go have some coffee privately? And she said, well, there's a little coffee shop around the corner. And he's a, an attractive looking man. And they go around the corner, and he talks about the fact that he's very attracted to her. She's a very attractive woman, and he'd like to get to know her better. And he continues in the discussion. He says, look, I'm an agent with the FBI <laughs> operating here in Chicago. And there's a law that was passed by Congress that says that American citizens cannot trade arms and munitions with foreign governments that are opposed to the United States government. Wow. And at that time, this is true, at that time, Mussolini was and Hitler were very active in Germany and Italy. So happens that the mafia in Chicago is running guns and ammunition to Mussolini's army in Italy. So he says... I want you to come and work with me at the FBI. We'll, we'll pose as a couple, and we're gonna have to change you a lot, but you, you're just gorgeous, but we're gonna make you even more gorgeous. We're gonna make you look like Carol Lombard. <laughs> so they give her a whole new wardrobe, a whole new makeover, and uh, he takes her to a couple of meetings, and at one meeting in a private club, a dinner in a private club, he admits to her that in fact, there's a shipment going out that night on a boat to Italy full of arms and ammunition. 
the room has been surrounded by FBI agents, and when she gives the nod, they all come in and they arrest everybody in the room, including her and the FBI agent. And uh, they take him down, and they obviously release her because they know she's with them. And um, she's exhausted with uh, with with going to school, trying to play spy, and be a nurse and everything else. And her friend, who was her senior year or third year roommate, has moved to California, San Diego, after she graduates, and has been bugging her to come to San Diego to 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 work and live because the weather is much better. Chicago winters are actually worse than the winters in in Waterloo, Iowa. <laughs> so she's exhausted. She's finished her training at 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 Northwestern, and she's done with the with the spies and everything else. And she says, okay. She calls and said, I'm coming. I don't have a job. I'm just coming to get out of Chicago. So she takes the train <laughs> cross country and gets a chance to continue to see what's happening with the depression. She gets into San Diego and in a matter of a few days, they get her as a, a, get her as a, a job as a floor nurse in an ER in a veterans hospital in San Diego. And, um, they go to a Mexican restaurant and a bunch of fighter pilot candidates come barreling into the restaurant <clears throat> and she sees this guy and she's for some reason seemed to be attracted to him. And he comes over and introduces himself and they spend some time talking together and and he's, he's smitten and so is she, but she knows she can't. And one day... He doesn't show up. He's gone. And she finally finds out that his unit had been redeployed to England to fly intelligence missions over Germany to see what was going on. She thinks she's never going to see him again. She decides, maybe I need to do something. So she decides to, to volunteer as an army nurse. And she gets transferred to Honolulu, Hawaii, to the hospital there. And she becomes the charge nurse. And she she meets she meets a, a senior officer because she's written a report to the base commander about the deplorable conditions of the medical supplies at the hospital. The storage rooms are full of rodents and ants and insects, and they're contaminated, and they can never be used. So she writes out this paper, which she gives to the her boss at the hospital, who then turns it over to the base commander, who gives it to the admiral of the fleet. And he passes it on to Washington. And so the... The um, chief of staff for the army gets it, reads it, and invites her to come to Washington to talk to the Joint Chiefs of Staff about her idea <laughs> wow. on how we how we fix the medical supply problem. George Marshall at the time, the Marshall Plan, who was the Army Chief of Staff, she and him become great friends, and he becomes her confidant, and she becomes his confidant. 
So she has conversations with him all the time. And he thinks she's an amazing woman with incredible talent to serve uh, her fellow veterans and soldiers. And in the book, she's involved in a, in, in a lot of different projects that were important. Um, and uh, she got rede gets redeployed to the Philippines for the attack of the United States going into the Philippines as the, we start the offensive to recapture the world. So it's, it's, it's a love story because her pilot has been redeployed to Honolulu for Hickam Field because there are 120 naval ships in Pearl Harbor and no air cover. Yep. None. So they sent a fleet of fighters, his, his, and they meet each other again. They fall in love again and they get married on November the 28th, 1941. On December the 7th, 1941, they're on their honeymoon at the Halekalani Hotel on Waikiki Beach as wow. the Japanese planes come roaring over the island headed towards Pearl Harbor. Holy smokes. And she had just finished another assignment where she developed the triage plan that the military adopted, the new one, because she wrote to her general friend that, that the people that she's talking to in the Army and the Navy and the Air Corps are telling them that if we go to war, it's going to be much bigger scale than we've ever done before. And we're going to have a lot of wounded and we're going to have to figure out how to deal with it. So she comes up with a triage plan and she's put in charge of it for the entire island. But she goes around the country training people at various bases of how to triage. And so when the, the Japanese aircraft come on December the 7th, they both know that they have to go to their respective job. He has to go to the airport and see what he could do, if anything, to fight off the Japanese planes. And she's know there's going to be a lot of wounded people. She's going to go back and have to set up her triage unit. So they, they get up and get to rest. And uh, she drives him to the airport, Hickam Field. But before they leave the hotel room, he says to her, let's come back in a year and finish the honeymoon. Wow. He drops her. She drops him <laughs> off at the airport. Wow. She drops him off at the airport and she goes to the hospital. Three days later, she gets a notice that her husband has been shot down. Oh no. And I'm not going to tell you any more of the story. Wow. So, this is so detailed. Yes. Uh, tell me a little bit about this. why this is so freaking detailed, Dan. Why is it? <laughs> yes, because this is amazing. It's it's well, I'm. All of my books are highly detailed. I believe that as an author, my job is to paint pictures with words. Yes. And if you can successfully 
develop a style uh, that paints beautiful pictures and realistic pictures. And you, you, when, when you use a lot of events that were real and you create the events around them and the people around them, and you develop the relationships between the people by talking about what's going on in their lives. Her older sister is going to get married, and she comes back from college to to be her one of her her bridesmaid, and and yet at the same time, early on in the book, when when Mary Margaret Mary Margaret Murphy, by the way, is the name of our Irish lass. Um, one, one writer told me it has to be three M's. I said, I didn't know that at the time when I was writing it, but it, it happens to work out that Mary Margaret Murphy is three M's. So, um, but in, in, and in her naivete and her relationship, her most intimate relationship with her quote, high school sweetheart, there's a wonderful, wonderful scene where they're out on the porch on the spring during the summertime. And he, um, for the first time in the relationship, he looks in the, the window of the house and there's a swing and a big glass window in the living room. And he's looking through the window, the porch lights on, and he's looking for her mom and dad because he's decided to get up the courage to take a handful of her on the porch. But he wants to make sure that mom and dad won't around. So he, he, he gets a hold of her, and um, she jerks a little bit the first time. But as as they they kiss and, and make out and, and things get more comfortable, uh, she relaxes. So he kisses her goodbye. She goes upstairs, and and um, her older sister looks at her and says, "So is that your first time?" And she says, "What do you mean was your first time?" <laughs> Where he, he, he fouls you up. And he, she said, uh, uh, how did you know? He said, well, if you look down, the left side is all wrinkled up and the right side is perfectly smooth and everything's there. So that's how she knew. That's a kind of a detailed piece that a lot of people would, would laugh about and chuckle about, but it's it's a reality. So, so I think it's just a matter that my brain um, really wants to to create pictures. Now, I went through an experience, Jim, and um, not everybody does this. The, the first three books in the trilogy, The Brotherhood of the Red Nile, by the way, I would point out to you that, that if, you read, if you haven't read book one, go get book one because 60 Minutes last Sunday did a whole segment of the vulnerability of the electrical grid in the United States and how it could be attacked. And I, if you read book one, you'll see in great detail how they would do it, where they would do it, and what would be the, the, the ramifications if they attacked the electrical grid. That's just this kind of a side story. So when, it, when so I was writing the fourth book. I, I, I wrote the, the, the original three was to be a trilogy. And after about six, seven months of the third book coming out, I started getting emails from people and they say, well, when's the next book coming out? And I would write them back and I'd say, do you understand a trilogy is three 
three books and they write back. So <laughs> you understand so when's three next, books? When's the next book coming out? And so I actually wrote a fourth, I don't know whether it's a sequel or what it is, but I wrote a fourth book. But something happened in that book. I started to write it the way that most authors write novels in third person. And for some reason, I, I can't tell you why it happened. About halfway through the book, my whole brain switched and I found out I was writing first person. Didn't realize that I was writing first person. Instead of he said or she said, by writing in first person, it puts you in the intimacy of the moment all the way through the book. So my publisher said, I'm sorry, I love the second half, but I can't have one half of the book in third person and one half in first person. You gotta go back and rewrite the first half of the book in first person. Wow. So I had to rewrite the book. Um, but it's, a, it's an amazing experience because if you're a good storyteller, first person is the, is the to me, the, the constant way to write. So I was writing Sad Eyes in first person, and I was writing Lincoln at the same time. <laughs> In first person. <laughs> wow. So two different genres, and and, and Lincoln, which we're I guess we're going to talk about early, later in a week. Yes. But, but well, again, this this book that this Sad Eyes book. What's been the uh, reception? What's been some of the feedback you've gotten on the book? Um, people tell me when they read the book that um, they are amazed at my character development. They, when I wrote the trilogy, I, I spent a lot of time developing the, the picture of who the people were, the bad guys and the good guys. In Sad Eyes, I, I, I spent a lot of time talking about mom and dad and the brother and the sister and Mary Margaret and her friends and her lovers. Um, it, it really, um, it, people love the story. And, and my wife, who was my principal editor, um, she, she looks at chapters after I finish a chapter. And, and she, kept, she would kept saying to me, so where is this going to go? She wanted to know what the ending was going to be. And I refused to tell her. And so when she got to the end of the book, she was looking at the last chapter, and she turned the last page. She says, I got chills. I didn't expect the ending that you gave me in the book, but it fit perfectly with what you were trying to do. So I haven't had anybody tell me it's it's stupid or crazy. The 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 compliments have been terrific. Um, they love the storyline. Um, it's it's a storyline that's really appropriate for this time in our lives, Jim. Um, it, it, it was, I don't know whether it was the inspiration from the Lord or what it was, but I'm writing this book when women are being attacked as being, you know, birthing persons and and the, the Supreme <laughs> Court justice couldn't define what a woman was. And, yes. And, and so so that, that women, women took it on the chin, in a sense, over the last couple of years. 
and the women's organizations didn't do very much to support them. So first of all, I figured, I said, this is, this is a story that anybody can read, anybody can enjoy, and anybody can be proud to be an American, and can be proud of her as a person. And so I, I felt that in writing the book, America needed an uplifting story, something positive about what yeah. people people did. And so it came at a time when when we and America needed the lift and 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 America needed to celebrate the fact that this woman, because of her relationship with Marshall, was able to contribute the full measure of her talents and abilities to serve soldiers and veterans and people who served in the military. And so it's it's a feel-good book. It's it's an exciting book. It is rom it's purely romance. And you know, to to be able to write a romance novel at the same time you're writing writing about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Which I find amazing. <laughs> <laughs> this book is a this uh, this book on uh, sad eyes um, is not a typical novel in length. It's about six hundred pages. Yeah. But my particular writing style is, is not necessarily unique. But my style is, um, I try to have no chapter longer than a, a thousand words, and um, and so what I want to do is I want a person to sit down with this book, and the first few chapters might be a page, a page and a half, two pages. I want them to turn the page, and I want them to be saying, just, "Just one more. I'll just read one more chapter." <laughs> just read one more. And, and what happens is you get people hooked on the story, the, the detail, the, the, the mess the visuals help turn the pages. Cause I, and I use cliffhangers extensively. Um, but, uh, you see what's going on in people's lives. And, and that's what I like to write about. And, and when you deal with, a combination of romance, and believe me, you know, uh, I had my my younger sister was one of one of my readers is one of my readers. She says, "How did you know so much about women?" <laughs> said, <laughs> How did you know so much about women? I see. I think I'm married to one, and I have two sisters. But beyond that, I don't know. But but she she just she just it's it's like you're in touch with your feminine side. I said I don't know about that, but uh. but. When you when you think about, uh, and I I I, am, I say it for me. Other people wouldn't do wouldn't even begin to understand what I'm saying, not because they're not intelligent. It's just they're not writers. Um, um, they they question how much research do you do in your books? Yes. And I said I probably spend more time researching the elements for the story than I do writing the story. Well, I'll tell you, you have got quite the book here. Um, where have you been 
promoting this? I know you've been going it's, all over the place on radio and TV and everything, but what what, yeah. what is what what it's, what have these the, folks been saying? Uh, same kind of stuff. Um, so the book is available at uh, you know all the usual places. Uh, you can buy it uh, online from uh, Barnes and Noble and Amazon. You can also buy it. Um, we have a, a a really special deal. Uh, my publisher, which is Hollis Media out of Philadelphia. If you go to hollismedia.com, you, you'll find the a book section. And they're running a special. Lincoln is two volumes and Sad Eyes is one. So they're offering the two, the two books, three books in total, but the two stories in a bundle for a special discounted price. So go to hollismedia.com and look for the, the bundle on Sad Eyes and Lincoln. And you're gonna be holed up for a lot of time because I think that the, the, I know that the Lincoln book is two books, part one, part two. Wow. And um, somewhere in the neighborhood of, you ready, Jim? Quarter of a million words. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's a lot of ink. But, but they're both books are very quick reads. Um, make, make a great Christmas present for people, a long, cold winter night. I do say to people, um, I try and caution people. Now, in the Lincoln book, which we'll talk about later in the week, but I just want to yeah. give your reader, or listeners and watchers a, a, a tease. I make a guarantee in the Lincoln book on the back page. Now, you got to think about this. The question is, if you can figure out the ending of this book without cheating, I'll give you your money back. Wow. And people say, well, that's dumb. Everybody knows Lincoln's get shot. I didn't say that Lincoln got shot. I said, if you can figure out the ending of this book before you get to the last page and you're not a cheater, I'll buy it back from you. And I have everybody who has read the Lincoln book, nobody, zero, figured out the ending. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. We have got uh, Dan Perkins with us today. And Dan, I'm going to go ahead and put you on a brief hold here. Sure. And uh, when we come back, we will have more with Dan. But... Uh, it is uh, wrap things up for this edition of our big program. And uh, thanks for joining us. We are going to say peace and chicken. <laughs> it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.